the reality is, is if we're all rolling up our sleeves right now to really start putting this action in place, then it'll stick. And if we want to reach people and we want to understand what they need and how they need support, we need to work through partnerships in order to do that. And we need to do that in order to get to scale. It totally depends on the innovators in this space, the people that are going to step up, form the coalitions, build the movements, create the new models, and drive culture change that will lead us to where I think we'll all want to go. Today, we're talking about a changing workforce. The future is destined to look different for skills-based workers as corporations rethink the requirements for hiring and put systems in place to give workers critical training on the job. The pandemic accelerated the design of a new pathway for skills-based workers, but the road is still long to a reimagined workforce despite innovation in this sector. Welcome to the Horizons podcast, where we take conversations from JFF's annual Horizons conference and move them forward. I'm your host, Tamisha Bridges-Mansfield. Today, we are listening in on a discussion with representatives from the private business sector who are running toward a changing landscape in order to ensure economic advancement for a more diverse pool of workers. The panel is hosted by JFF's Vice President of Employer Mobilization, Kat Ward. Kat is joined by Monique Baptiste, Executive Director and Head of Workforce Philanthropy at J.P. Morgan Chase & Company. Lydia Logan, Vice President for Global Education and Workforce Development at IBM, also joins the conversation, along with Ryan Stowers, Executive Director at the Charles Koch Foundation. All of us know it has been a disruptive couple of years, to say the least. And in moments of incredible disruption, you also see incredible innovations. We've seen a lot of innovations in particular coming out of the private sector, and we wanted to interrogate today what's most promising specifically when it comes to equitable economic advancement for workers in the U.S., and what's going to stick around and what's just something that had its moment, but that we may not see last through the continued turbulence that we're seeing and that we're definitely going to be seeing in our economy. Name an innovation for me that you feel particularly excited about? And I'm going to start with you, Monique. Great. Um, I will definitely lean into the digital revolution around skilling. Um, I think we have um, invested a lot of resourcing, a lot of time, and we're seeing just innovations pop up all over the globe that is really opening access for workers particularly entry-level workers, to skill up, to earn new skills, to, to do so on various different platforms. I think the, the pandemic and the kind of 
expansion of technology in our homes has really presented an opportunity for workers to take advantage of these tools uh, that didn't exist before, at least not to the level of ubiquity that we see today. And it's just fascinating to see the number of corporate partners that are taking advantage of that revolution to bring those tools in-house, to bring those tools integrated into their learning systems to make sure more workers have access to it. So I think that's really where I'm, I'm bullish. Excellent, thank you. Lydia, how about you? I'll do a plus one for Monique. We're certainly leaning into both the training and credentials for internal training for IBMers and what we do through our philanthropy externally and also what we do for our clients. But I think it's also for us a skills-first hiring approach So for the U.S., we've eliminated a degree requirement for 50% of our U.S. job postings, and that's helped us to diversify, yeah, (laughs) diversify our talent pool, the applicants, and the hires. We've seen a big change there, and people have often asked me, well, you know, great. So you eliminate it from the posting. What does it mean after that? We do management training for managers who are hiring, and we ask them about how they're writing the job description, does it really require a degree or not? And then there are other steps that happen after that. I'm not gonna say we have it perfect, but I think we're well along the way. Thank you. Brian. Yeah, it's hard to just choose one, but I'll do it. If you think back what's happened, this groundswell, this energy, one of the things I wanted to highlight was skill up. And and I know they're here um, and, but, but think, let's break skill up down for a minute because it's innovation across a couple of margins that are really important. It's bottom up, it's a coalition. So it's, it's recognition that none of us have the solution, that we're, we're gonna have to work together to find solutions to solve some of these problems. So it's a coalition of 60 plus organizations. And then I think the greatest innovation is it, it's focused on helping workers identify who they are So their aptitudes, and then basing a pathway that will help them, uh, you know, will help them increase their mobility and their potential based on who they are. And I think that innovation is often skipped over in a lot of the solutions we're looking at. So I think that's the one I wanted to flag. Welcome back to our studio. I'm now joined by special guest Zoe Weintraub, who will help us continue the conversation that started on stage at Horizons. Zoe is Senior Vice President of Executive and Community Partnerships at Guild Education. Guild provides the tools for employers to invest in their workers through learning programs, career development, and coaching, unlocking opportunities for advancement for those employees. Zoe, welcome to the program. Thank you so much for having me. So let's first talk about the commitment IBM and other major employers are making to changing the landscape for workers. It sounds like a great initiative, eliminating a degree requirement for 50% of positions in the case of IBM. So my question is, does that really change who is getting jobs? And what is the next step in ensuring that all applicants really do get a fair shot at success during hiring and beyond? I think we think it's an important first step. And it's important to note that eliminating the degree requirements 
absolutely changes who applies to get the job and is really an access unlock. But we then also need to think about what are the programmatic things that an employer can do to support and develop that talent so that they do have the skills to continue to succeed once they're on the job. I think the next step in that chain is equally as important. I think seeing the potential in candidates is huge. And we see that with a lot of our employers thinking differently about formal education and training. Uh, And we believe that talent is equally distributed, but opportunity is not. And that's why I think a number of the employers we partner with across industries today, like Walmart, like Chipotle, like Hilton and UC Health, think about how do they provide support services to their employees once they're on the job. And we're really bullish about the power of short-term credentials so that you can support that population that is getting hired without the formalized degree or the formalized credential. But that doesn't really mean that we think the degree has fully lost its resonance, which is an important note. You're increasing access at the top of the funnel, but it doesn't mean you should say it's a full lockout for education in its current form forever. You know, we often say at Guild that the degree is the container for those skills. Uh, It's been the chosen one for decades, both in higher ed and in the employment market as a signal. And those containers look different depending on the learners. And I think starting with the job requirements and the job posting is an important first step. But so much around traditional higher ed doesn't work for most Americans today. And so we do need to think differently about serving this population. Uh, One thing that doesn't work is the four-year degree. In many cases, it's because someone works full-time or they have a family that they need to take care of. In most cases, both. Um, And so that a badge or a signal for hiring in the approval side of, of a talent marketplace has often been the degree. But what does it look like when you're committed, employers are making a commitment to your education investment, when they're thinking about something like credit for training, so your on-the-job skills can actually stack into a new form credential. I think those are all kind of component parts of how we should be thinking about this broader movement and that it doesn't end when someone gets in the door. It's actually just the beginning of the investments that those employers need to continue to make to support that population. Yeah, no, I think you're right. And we'll touch a bit around kind of how employers are partnering with within the, the post-secondary space. But I appreciate you bringing up, it's not just about getting people in the door, but like what happens after, which kind of gets to a bit of my second question around like upskilling, right? So how much of an investment do you see being made in skilling up at corporations across the board? And then what do you think is the potential for this approach to really alter or transform um, the U.S. workforce, both in terms of skills, um, diversity, and also longevity across the board? You know, we're focused on education, skilling, and career mobility within organizations. So once someone is in the door, what are the investments and, frankly, the value to the employer once that person uh, has come on board? And a lot of that has to do with shifting the mode that corporations have forcibly been pushed into as we transition out of the effects of COVID, which is that they really need to think inwardly about their talent. So it can't just be a fill the top of the funnel and we'll be able to sustain our business needs. We need to be thinking about more innovative talent strategies for development for our our workforce at the front line and all the way up to the C-suite. And I think that's really transcend industry. So we're seeing it in healthcare, we're seeing it in retail, financial services. I think from an investment and a scale perspective, I have some stats that I think help indicate where employers are investing and why this is really a long-form movement. Today, Guild supports 
over 5 million employees in the U.S. that are eligible for education and skilling through their employer. And that's just on a 12-month basis. So that number continues to grow year over year. In terms of impact, there's kind of three key things that most employers have focused on as a marker of success of their talent strategy and their mobility strategy. One, how are we seeing role change? Is there a role change in the population we're supporting with skilling initiatives? Today, we see two times higher likelihood of an annual role change for learners in guilds programs. And that's going to think about everything from degree attainment, high school completion, English as a second language, coding boot camp, cybersecurity. So it ranges the gamut. The second is, and I think a really important one is, how are you measuring wage increase? And is that an outcome that's driving towards these investments? And we see almost a two and a half times higher wage increase for first year learners using their tuition program. And I'll underline that point because I think it's a real signal when someone's enrolled in a program as a marker of their long-term success and commitment to the organization. And we're seeing that in the data. And I think it's also important to note that folks can get a wage increase while in a program without completing it. It isn't a binary. You need to complete the credential or the degree before you start to see upward wage growth. And then the third is retention. And this is both for the employee and for the company, but we see 43% higher retention rate over a 12-month period in the industries that I mentioned, which are going to have high turnover, frontline hourly workforce than those that aren't engaged in the job. And then I'd be remiss not to mention that these education and skilling investments also expand access and create greater opportunity for those who've been historically left behind. So I'll shine on um, Live Better You, which is Walmart's kind of massive national program of their investments and their associates, their black hourly associates who've participated were 88% more likely to receive promotions than non-participants. And their Hispanic or Latino associates were 71% more likely to attain promotions. And so when we think about the investments in skilling, it really is building towards both a stronger workforce, a more capable workforce within an organization, but also achieving economic mobility, representation across roles and levels in a way that I think cements it as a long-term investment as part of a company's corporate strategy. Yeah, no, I, I really appreciate you hitting on what the metrics are. And it really speaks to what, you know, what we're thinking about and the things that we're working on at JFF, both through our work around what does it mean to be an impact employer and investing in really holistic talent solutions, but also when we think about what does it mean to have a quality job and we look at career advancement, right? And what are the opportunities for people to have more opportunities for skills? and be able to see a pathway. And so what you're talking about and what this conversation is bringing up is like the importance of that investment, both for employers to be impactful in the marketplace, but also for workers to have good jobs. So it's both of those pieces coming together. Employees want three Ps, which is they want pay, they want purpose, and they want pathways. They want to know that when they join a company and that that becomes a key input to them deciding to stay with the organization that they're at, but also to join an organization, to tell folks about the opportunities there. And I think that shift is a part of the worker kind of pendulum shift of their voice, their needs is more top of center in designing benefits, designing programs, designing learning strategies uh, within kind of the corporate landscape here. Yep. No, I think all of that is true. So I'm going to shift gears a little bit and talk a bit about like, what does it look like when corporations or employers partner 
with post-secondary institutions. And so the Harvard Business School project on managing the future of work and the American Association of Community Colleges uh, recently released a survey, and it found that more than 1,000 executives, managers, and community college leaders responded. Um, And it led to the conclusion that community college leaders and employers are really failing at partnering with each other in ways that meet both of their needs. So would love to hear what your thoughts are in terms of how these two groups should be working together and kind of what's necessary to, 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 to shift the tide of this survey result. Yeah. I mean, since day one, you know, Guild has been bridging this exact gap. I think that It's important to note the report's findings are from a survey conducted in November 2020. And on the whole, I do think we have made a lot of progress since then across the broader ecosystem. And frankly, we were confronted with the need to make a change. I think we're energized by the work we're doing to bring together some of the best learning institutions across universities and learning providers, which include community colleges with Fortune 500 employers. You know, we're at a stage now where our learning marketplace, um, our partners are, you know, have over 2,100 programs and 96 fields of study. But I think what's really important when we think of where is that headed is it is about how can we bring new content into the university field or to the learning provider field based on what's happening in the corporation. Mm-hmm. But we also need to think about what is the measurement of the the credential? What is the goal? Um, and what is the means to the end? Is it the completion? Mm-hmm. Is it the job? Is it the wage opportunity or wage growth? And the more we bring in the corporate landscape into that conversation, I think the clearer we can get on refining that outcome and giving you know, workers and students the best path to, you know, a long sustaining wage. Yeah, no, I think, I think it's right. And you're touching on some of the themes of a previous Horizons episode about like the need for community colleges to be forward looking and ready to kind of pivot and change and bring on new partnerships. And also like that importance of a intermediary, a connector, an interpreter between the two sides that can really help make that partnership happen in a way that makes sense. So let's head back to our panel um, where they will dive deeper into the means and methods that are allowing leaders in the private sector to focus on building this new type of workforce and that really they aren't doing this alone. I wanted to pause for a moment and Monique, I'm going to turn this to you. I want to think a little bit about there's a lot of players in driving a more inclusive economy. The private sector has a role to play. What is J.P. Morgan seeing as its role right now, being in a turbulent moment? What do you see as your role in driving a more inclusive economy? And is there anything you feel particularly proud of in the last couple of years that you'd lift up as an example of of J.P. Morgan's role? Yeah, I mean, I think the biggest thing is leading by example. Um, And... You know, we really can't get to an equitable economy if we're not building partnerships and expanding those opportunities in communities where the talent exists. Um, And so we've done a lot of work really digging in on how do we build direct talent relationships in cities like Chicago and Columbus and New York so that those partnerships really can both build capacity, right? They know those communities. They know the folks who are looking for work. They know the skills. 
Um, and so we've really partnered with them over the last few years. We originally kind of kicked it off with the work we were doing around second chances to really expand opportunity for individuals with criminal backgrounds to enter into the financial services sector. But I think we're going further than that, right? Because it's not just about um, you know, making those connections, those bespoke connections, but really helping build the capacity of those organizations and investing in the capacity of those organizations and probably most importantly, seeing them as a trusted partner to really provide the talent um, access that's really necessary. But I think the challenge that we're dealing with now is you know, we have a lot of conversations around kind of breaking glass ceilings, right? Really working on the sticky floor. And so I think that's where we're focusing a lot of our energies now is how can we, we have these community conversations, how do we build more of them? How do we get into more communities? How do we build more partnerships and really do so at scale? So I'm, I'm hearing a lot about um, partnership and there's partnership is a massive theme, yeah. right? Lydia, I know it's really key to what you do at IBM. Like what, from your vantage point, what makes a partnership work? What makes it work at, at some level of scale so we can start to really see more widespread impact? It's important that we work through partnerships so that we reach people the way they need to be reached, not the way we want to reach right. them. And I think that's really important for us to understand. And I think in selecting partners, making sure you have shared goals. Because, yeah. you know, if your content areas are not the areas that they focus on and there's a mismatch, it's not the right partner. Doesn't mean they're not doing great work, mm -hmm. but I think if we are good and we're doing our job about finding the right match, then we really see change happening. Ryan or Monique, anything you'd want to add to that? I, I would just go back to this, this humility that we all need, this recognition that we can't solve it ourselves. I think we, we miss that a lot because we come up with a good idea and we think it's gonna change the world. And by finding other organizations or individuals who share a common vision and have complementary capabilities that can add value to what we're trying to do, and then the diversity of perspectives you can get by the Catalyze Challenge is a great example of this, where, where IBM, a handful of others are, are getting together and, and we bring different things to the table. And then that local knowledge piece that Lydia nailed, that's critical. But coalitions, people are using the word movements. That's what's going to drive the kind of transformative change that we want to see, that we need to see in order to really help these people reach their full potential. And it won't happen without these types of partnerships. I mean, one thing I would add is to do that work where we're putting our worker learners first, right? Where we're listening to the perspectives that they bring, they can solve many of these problems. They can tell us about our work in some instances better than we know, right? That's right. Um, and so I think there, there are so many different efforts that are growing now where the worker voice is central to that effort. And I think there are honestly complementary tools and technologies that are really putting the power in the hands of worker learners to make the best choices for themselves using you know, labor market information and, and career navigation. We've recently partnered with FutureFit AI, which really provides that type yeah. of connectivity and navigation on both skills as well as opportunity. And those are more tools that we need to really make sure that it's workers who are determining the outcome here. Welcome back to our studio. 
So, Zoe, the panel was discussing workers determining the outcomes, and that sounds really very radical. How do you think we got here? And on the flip side, are we really putting too much on workers? And how do we find the right balance between what workers should do and what the corporate space should do? Yeah, I think the social contract between employees and employers has changed. I think that we can all agree on that. And it was very clear on the panels. Um, And in many ways, employers are thinking more about how do they foster cultures of opportunity through learning programs and career mobility as one of the ways to stay competitive. Employees want a pathway. They want to know what their career path is pushing them towards. And I think the smart, innovative, and competitive companies are still trying to offer um, programs that can enhance their career. I think the point made by Monique, Lydia, and Ryan is spot on. We need to meet workers where they are. And I think that's been consistent throughout today's conversation. Uh, And I think that's one of the reasons why, as guilds built a model over time, coaching services and career support has continued to be one of the forefront, most important parts of our work. Um, You know, I think some of the stats that really shed some light on where employees are thinking more about the demands or or the outcomes they expect from their companies have come from our America Worker Survey. So 69% of frontline workers want to be at their current company two to five years from now, which I think feels quite different than the rhetoric that's out in the media, particularly about the great resignation. They want to be where they are. And of that group, nearly half of them say that their desires to stay hinges on the opportunity to move laterally or upward within their organization. I think that's something that we really need to make sure is at the forefront of how we're talking about this new shift in the workforce. Um, The second stat that I think is valuable for the shift we're talking about is 78% of workers report significant challenges in trying to advance their skill set and careers. And they cite a lack of training programs in that insight. And 89% of employees said that having a career path at their company is important to them, which again, no surprise. And three out of four workers shared they are likely to leave if offered a role with additional education and career opportunities. And to me, that's that those facts all hinge on employees being in the driver's seat, but employers needing to listen um, when they think about shifting these cultures and these benefits. Let's now return to our panel one last time as they discuss the future of skills-based hiring. I'd love to hear all three of you project out on this. Is the skills-first sort of competency-based talent management approach a moment? Or is that going to be something that you project based on what we know now? Do you project that that's going to be business as usual for employers? Is it going to be five, 10 years from now the way business is done? Monique? I mean, it's really up to us, right? It's so encouraging to hear the amount of conversation we're having today on skills-based hiring, right? And so I feel the sea change, right? I feel the coalition of the willing growing every time I listen to the next conversation on this topic. I think now it's the time to put that talk into action. Um, And it's hard work. Lydia, what do you think? I 100% agree with Monique. It's, It's incumbent upon us to make it stick. And that's only if we build value on the skill side. You know, are we honoring credentials? Are we making hiring and promotion based on, are we building in the systems in the HR side that will make that happen? We have apprenticeships. We work to get those in place. We pay them well. We have ACE accreditation tied to many of them so that people who go through our apprenticeship programs and stay stay. If you decide to go back to school, you've got that in your pocket when you go. 
But, you know, there's a lot of work getting each one of those accredited, and it takes, in some cases, two to three years to go through that process. We have a whole team of people working on it. We're also a big enough company to have a team of people working on it. Yeah. I think it's a special moment. I think we've got major tailwinds behind us. But I agree with Lydia and Monique. If, if we don't step up and take advantage of those tailwinds, I think the headwinds from the status quo are strong. And it's going to be really easy for us to miss the moment and just tweak at the margins yep. or, or make some, some marginal change when the opportunity we have right now is to total, totally transform the way we think about work and learning forever. So final question, what is giving you hope in this moment as we look to make the transformational change we seek to make? We'll go Lydia, Ryan, and, and Monique. What gives me hope is that I hear people from every sector talking about it, not just business sector, but I hear the nonprofit sector, academics, government representatives, policymakers. I feel the momentum, and I think we're either going to take advantage of it, and we're all going to do our part to do the right thing and move it forward, or we're going to miss the moment. Yeah, so uh, I think it's, it's groups like this. It's the inspiring stories and examples and models and innovations that you see at a place like Horizons that give you this snapshot that seem to indicate that we can actually pull this off. Yeah, I mean, I've been in workforce development for some time, and I think what's giving me hope is when I first started, workers seemed to be a problem to be solved, right? It's very, it was a deficits orientation. Uh, it was a charitable endeavor. And I think today, this is a business imperative, and workers are seen as assets, not just to companies, but to communities and to our economy. So. Um, that's what's really giving me hope. I feel like the tone and tenor has completely changed and now we just have to get to work. Welcome back to our studio. Zoe, that's a great final point from Monique Baptiste, but I'd like to give you the final word today. The panel agreed that it's time to get to work. While, as Kat said early on, these are turbulent times, they are arguably even more turbulent for the companies making this change now than they were when this panel convened at Horizons. So how does the current state of our economy change this conversation? Yeah. At, at Guild, we often say we're focused on Main Street, not Silicon Valley or Wall Street. And demand for workers on Main Street isn't going away despite what we're seeing in terms of the current market with layoffs in the tech and other sectors. And as we work with more and more Fortune 500 partners to trust, address their job shortages and labor challenges, they're doubling down on their investment. They're recognizing the skills landscape, as you said, both hiring in with some skills or credentials and knowing that it's actually important to invest in that emerging pipeline or earn-to-learn models uh, that will continue to make them valuable over time. I think you know the labor and economic markets will continue to be dynamic, but employers stand to gain in the long term for their investments in their workforce because they can rely on them. And the data shows that they can rely on retention, they can rely on their workforce for upward mobility, increased employee sentiment, 86% of employees engaged with a guild education program are more likely to refer others to their employer. They want to stay. And I think delivering what 
employees want, pathways to career opportunity, mobility, advancement, wage gains because of that advancement, companies can increase their worker skill and engagement to not only survive, but to thrive through the changes we know lie ahead. And we've seen this in the process of work with multiple years of data now from large employers like Walmart to Target to Chipotle. And I think their their value of their employees and their investment in continued programs that do advance their hourly workforce, their store or retail footprint are going to be the ways in which we continue to make broad scale advancement um, in, in, in this skills economy. Yeah. And so that's a hopeful outlook and I think a bit of a challenge for where we are right now in our economy. So thank you again, Zoe, for joining us for this important conversation. We really appreciate it. I appreciate being here and I'm glad we're having the conversation. So thank you. And thank you to our listeners for joining us for this episode of the Horizons Podcast. Please let us know what you thought about today's conversation and share a comment wherever you find your podcasts. Also, head over to horizons.jff.org and learn about Horizons 2023. This year's theme is Without Limits. I look forward to the conversation on our next podcast. For now, I'm your host, Tamisha Bridges Mansfield. Oh, so much that I need.